we're live, we're kicking, and on today's episode, I have community worker from the Kirkmuir Hill and Blackwood Resilience Group, Leslie Speedy. How are you doing today, Leslie? I'm good, thank you. Happy days. So, the Live and Kicking podcast, we're going to tell your story and we're going to take it away back like everyone else, where you grew up and how it all started for you. Right, so for me, I grew up in a small mining village, Kirkmuir Hill, which is the South Lark Calls, really. It's just after the M74, so... I mean, I grew up with three older brothers and a twin sister, so quite a quite a big family growing up in a typical, you know, mining village council estate. So would I say life was average? I think so. Um, you know, typical family holiday every summer to Scarborough or from England or something like that. Um, but, you know, there was never much going on in the wee village, so in terms of, you know, aspirations, you, you kind of... Looked around, you know, it was to offer was a local factory, the old Delta factory, or, you know, working in the Birkwood Hospital back then. So, aye, that, that's pretty much the life and soul of Kipmer Hill growing up <laughs> in the 90s. And when you were that, when you were younger, Leslie, did you have any aspirations to go and do anything at school or, or whatever? Um, primary school, I, I just found primary school just absolutely boring. I hated mm. it, didn't know what I'd be there. I spent most of my time like, looking out the window, dreaming about some magical life in the forces. <laughs> like, like most days, aye. Um, but for, for a young age, I was always obsessed with the forces. It was always army for me. And I think, I don't know if you, if you remember, like years ago, you used, there was images of the UN painted white, so the white warriors, the white Bedfords all going into Kosovo or Bosnia and stuff like that. And I always remember thinking, like, I want to be in that army, I want to be the one that's got the white tanks. Is so, it, was, right? it, was this, was this, when you were a kid, you were looking at these things, that's why you joined the army, so that was your route path to the army, that was your inspiration, was it? I, I mean, that, that was kind of the most obvious moment for me, was seeing it all on TV. Mm-hmm. But even, even before that, like, me and my pals, I was a typical wee tomboy, so... Right. If I were ever out playing games across the fields, I was always like, Mum will play, Mum will play soldiers and, mm-hmm. you know, try to like stick b- bushes and hedges and all that inside, <laughs> your, inside your taps and doing your trousers and putting muck in your face and running about fields and trying to build weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any family members in the armed forces, in the army or whatever? No, none actually. I mean, the only family relative that was in the forces was probably my grandpa during the war. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, there was nothing. Yeah. So I was like... the like, where did this come from? Yeah, and where, where did that path then take you into the careers office? Aye, so I think I, I was just total geek for the forces. I remember mm. going to Air Beach. It was like a youth club trip and I seen the forces there. I seen them all like, like it must have been like the army recruitment team. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to have to talk to them. So I just spent the whole day and just going around getting all the leaflets and stuff. And then I, I clocked it, you could join it. Or you could sign up at 15 and a half. Mm-hmm. So I counted when I was 15 and a half. Walked to Les Mahago High School, skipped school for that afternoon, and went down and chapped on the door at Hamilton Recruitment Office, and like, I want to sign up. And now is that was that you then? Did you go? What, what was it called back then? It was called Young. Was it Young Entry or Young? Aye, it was Young Entry. Was aye. it Young Entry? And you go? Is it? Where did you go there? Did you go to like a? Was it like a army college? I'm sure my brother when he was in the army when he was sixteen, eighteen. He didn't actually join the full army. That's right. What was it called? Can you remember? So for me, it was the Army Apprentice College. Uh, that is it. Um, so at f- 15 and a half, he told me to come back on my 16th birthday. So mm. again, back into school, skipped school at 16, just dogged it that day, went down, signed up. And uh, I was wanting to be a joiner in the Army. My old man was a joiner. I think I'd be a joiner. 
that would be brilliant, you know, going, going abroad and building, like, I don't know how, but I had in my head just building <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And uh, when I joined up and you did your barb test and stuff like that, like, no, you should be a mechanic. Mm-hmm. I would never any interest in motors or mechanics or stuff like that. But I thought, you know, my, that that would be good. Mm-hmm. And there was like a car salesman. And I was like, can you can you play Lassie's Fitbit in, in the remi? Ah, you can do that. I'm like, right, I'll sign up now. <laughs> and that was it. It's so funny you say that. They do try and sell you in, don't you? go, oh, you can be a mechanic, a chef, look at this. You can go and do adventure training, Fitbit and all that. Aye. And when you were in there, how was your training? And I want to just go this way, obviously, a, a female's point of view. Because I've had, obviously, the very first podcast with no Michael, who was in the army. How was it for you? And it's a it's a very male dominated environment. Mm-hmm. Is that the same going through recruit training and then actually in the army itself? How was that? So for me, uh, we were Army Apprentice College. I was Carlisle yep. Company, and we were in this really old nineteen fifties block. Mm-hmm. So so the females, the lassies, we had kind of the wee corridor downstairs to the right, mm-hmm. and I think there was maybe started off maybe fourteen of us, and then the lads were in the rest of the block. So. I don't think they do that anymore. I think the females are in a separate block altogether, mm-hmm. but you were pretty much in with the guys, apart from one corridor for, for the lassies, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. Sometimes you felt like you were getting a wee bit left behind because all the training staff were all male. So they mm-hmm. would just walk into the guys' corridors and give them an update on part one orders or tell them what was happening next. As you were doing the other end of the block, you were aligning the guys to the memories and come mm-hmm. down. So I always felt that we were always... Last to know. Last to get the info. That's never good when you're in the army, is it? No, because you're last one out the door. So you know you're getting beasted now for being last one out. Come on, lads. And when it came to things like locker inspection, like the full screw would walk in and straight away, my locker was the first man and you'd walk in and straight away you think, guy, it's got to get ragged again and all my kit was just taking out, throwing out and he kept saying, oh, the guys are better, the guys are better. And it took me weeks to click on. I'm like, Lassie, let's just get up here and walk in the guys' room and see what the hell they're doing with the lockers. Yeah. And we, we looked at the one guys and thinking, right, that's what we're doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we just copied theirs and then that was it. Locker inspections passed. And was your trait, was it Catrick as well? Is that what all happened? We were doing in just outside Reading. The camp's mm-hmm. not there anymore, but it was all the Aberfield, which it, used to be the home of the Remy, I think, right. years and years ago. Right. Um, so they had the phase two for some technicians there, but it was kind of for the side we were in was off of your 16 to 18 year olds mm-hmm. who were into Remy, Royal Signals, Royal Engineers. And and before you went on to do, because it would have been like specialisation when it is a mechanic, did you do any soldiering as well before that? No. I, like, like, like the first entry into the army? Is, no? No, which is basically eight months of basic training. Aye, aye. Um, and then you passed out a week later, you were doing it your trade two training. Right. And again, apart from maybe the odd weekend exercise, it was pretty much all like tech college, mm-hmm. um, tech college and green kit. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, but your usual stuff, you know, maybe locker inspection once a week, then PE twice a day, sports afternoon, and then you're expected to just. And how did how, how did you find that, Leslie, physically and mentally in the army joining? Um, I suppose maybe physically, you're always maybe two or three yards behind the guys when it comes to squaddy runs. Mm-hmm. But I was always quite active because I was into the lassies fitbar. So, you know, I would do the PE at like six o'clock in the morning and then that afternoon I'd be playing the lassies fitbar and then going away play the games and stuff after training. Mm-hmm. So I was always quite active that way, but you, you did notice the difference. The guys were always, always beating you. Um, but mentally, I think 
I don't think there was much difference to be honest because like I said I was a wee bit of a tomboy anyway so mm -hmm. I kind of maybe put a few lads to the shame <laughs> quite <laughs> right don't know if that's anything to be proud about but no, uh, it's, it's that competitive nature you've got in you and you need mm -hmm. that when you're in the military especially when you are up against men and that there's always competition especially in the runs and the tests and stuff like that so ah, you need that wee bit of bite Aye, we, we were in a mixed platoon, we were in yeah. what you called back then, like we would call it Four Echo. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the guys hated being in the lassies platoon because mm -hmm. when it came to inter platoon challenges, we were uh, the last. Casarigo get a fucking passion in it. So it was good fun. And uh, so after after your recruit training, where did you go? Did you? Uh, I went straight up to Senelag, I see, because I was um, what you called Class A. Well, VMA, so vehicle mechanic class A, so I was armoured. So I was always got to be posted anywhere where there was like um, heavy armour or, you know, armoured engineers or something. So for me, it was Senelago with the Queen's Royal Hussars. All right. I, I think I went out there about the August time. Um, and that, that was just phenomenal, that. And everybody told me, you've got to absolutely love Germany. Mm -hmm. I was like, brilliant. But um, I remember getting after playing in Paderborn and you're just a typical squad. I had no idea of the dress of this a camp or where I was going anyway. <laughs> just stepped off a plane in Germany. Didn't speak German and you think, right, where am I going next? Wait, what age were you then? You I would be 17, 18 at that ah, point. So your eyes are wide open to the world, uh, didn't it? You did you never left Scotland then? Or was that your first time? No, I'd left Scotland a few times because, you know, I, I was fortunate enough when I was growing up in Kitmahill, one of the youth clubs, he set me on like the tall ships race. All right. So I was... I think I was maybe 15 or 16, I went yeah. to France, so St Malo, mm -hmm. and then racing the tall ships all the way up to Shetlands and stopped at Greenock. So yeah. that was probably my first time away from home, like abroad. Um, but I was one of them whenever a school trip came up in residential, I was Go right in front of the queue. <laughs> Quite right. Um, so I had always been into that, always, you know, I was never like attached to home or anything like that. I was always for going and exploring, trying new stuff. As obviously we've already spoken the phone, you've got to get right into all your, your adventures, all your history. Yeah, all your history. And did you go on any tours or anything? So my, my first tour um, in Germany, and this is what I try to explain this to people, I was posted in Germany, my unit was in Germany, and my first operational tour was actually back in Manchester for the fire brigade strike, so right. up fresco. And um, I think I had no long just passed my HGV, but you're passing HGVs, <laughs> right, and these nice new trucks, and they've got nice gearboxes, and then you th they throw you out in the road into a 1945 wooden fire engine, you know? <laughs> and I remember, like, somebody said, I'll need to double D the clutch. And I'm like, what the hell's double D the clutch? And I'm phoning up my aunties and all that, who maybe, I thought, well, they're a lot older, they'd have old motors. Yeah. How do you double D the clutch? <laughs> Try to talk with us over a phone. Did you, did you, I done, when I was in the Marines, we get sent to Leckensfield. Ah, that's Is that what you went to? We're in the Leckensfield runway. Aye. Beverly honestly, and all that. I honestly don't know how the, the civilian instructors do that every day, man, with the recruits. Oh, he must have oh, been oh, I, I could not do it. And then, when you done that, where did you go and operate? You went on a tour, didn't you? Aye, so after Fresco, um, we came back and uh, Iraq was just kicking off then. Mm -hmm. But we were ready to go to battle, so we were going into our training here. So we were about to Canada. Right. And that was for two back-to-back -back medicine man. So that was like that was my first real kind of military exercise. That was two six weeks blocks out in the field. And that was pretty much brigade-level training. Um, doing ba battle runs with the Challenger and mm -hmm. stuff like that and it was out there that's when we when we were told that the D squadron the squadron that I was in would be the armoured squadron going to, going to Iraq and mm -hmm. 
I mean, folk think, what do you feel about that? I think we were all buzzing because that's what we were, we were wanting to be. We wanted to be the armoured squadron. Mm-hmm. We were competitive against everybody else. So to us, that was like, yep, you were the best in the exercise. That, that's how you get picked kind of thing. So yeah, we were quite happy to be taking the challenger to Iraq. And how were you feeling at that point? I know you were saying you're like excited because I know when I was in the Marines, I was like, I want to go and do something. Was that the same feeling? It, it was I and, you know, maybe my family listening home to this podcast thinking, what? But <laughs> it, it was exciting because when, when you joined up, you always had this feeling that you were always got to go to war at some point. Mm. And, I mean, this was like early 2000, so I think back then everybody was still talking about it, World War Three has got to kick off at some point. Oh, but okay. you did believe back then that you were going out to Iraq to, like, you know, liberate these people, you were going out to be these big, do I say the word hero, but... Um, you felt that you were going to make a difference. Um, so there was a bit of excitement to start with. And then obviously um, you arrive out in Iraq and it's a different story altogether. And, and how was that when you arrived there? What was the atmosphere like? Um, I think for, for us it was quite strange because B Squadron were out maybe a week before us. And I think there was that story for years, um, for maybe at the beginning of the Iraq or that year before it, was um, the story that a lot of soldiers were maybe getting a bit nervous to open up fire, to return fire and stuff. So mm-hmm. as we got there, people were starting to get a bit nervous. You'll know yourself, one of the things you do is you go and, you know, the first thing you've got to do is zero your rifle against. You've got to go in the ranges mm-hmm. and just drive into the ranges that week during acclimatisation. Like, folk were, you could just see folk were dead nervous. Like, when do I, when do I cock my rifle? Mm-hmm. At what point do I take my, my safety catch off? Mm-hmm. And then... I can't remember what happened, but one of the B squadron lads, I think he was on top cover, so he was loaded. And I don't know if he took his safety catch off and nerves or something, but he basically hit a bump. It was old snatch Land Rovers at the time, fell back, released around inside the snatch, and it ricocheted and took him. But he, he survived it, the lad did survive it. Mm-hmm. It was all right, because it, it did ricochet, so... Mm-hmm. But that made everybody dead nervous, because all we heard on the... Like, Rumour control is that one of the lads had been shot in B squadron. You think we've only been here a week and we're still in acclimatisation. Yeah, that's, so, that's when it all sets in. That's when reality sets in, isn't it? Aye. But for me, like we were in Shiba Log Base. That's where we did our acclimatisation. And I think the first thing I wanted to do was put a phone call back home to my mum just to like calm the nerves. And I remember just saying, aye, it's all right, mum, we're just chilling out having ice cream, just getting used to the climate. <laughs> but that, that was true. We're sitting eating ice cream, but it was... <laughs> You know, when, when I left my mum at Glasgow Airport to fly back to Germany that week, she was just distraught. I see it, aye. And it's not till you look back and you think, you don't realise what you put your family through, do you? Oh, definitely. Um, but when you're out there, you're not really thinking about it, you know, you're just, you're just in that moment, you're, you're just a, living you're, in the here and now, so... You're um, in the zone, aren't you, because you've done all your beat-up training and that's what you're out there today. And you're exactly. like, right, let's get through this six months. Aye, you, like, you know yourself, once you've trained with everybody for so long, like, you, you do become part of a team mm-hmm. and after we left Bar- um, Shiba Log Base we went up to a wee compound <laughs> I'm glad they took us in at night time mm-hmm. you know you get up there in buses and it's like I just, just shut the curtains so nobody sees it soldiers in the buses I'm sure the locals know, you know I mean mm-hmm. I'm sure they knew it was us <laughs> in the bus but we go into this wee compound up at Riverside right next to the Shatal Arab and as soon as we get in, I think we took over for the light infantry. These lads were literally on their feet and on that bus before we were at <laughs> They were like, we're getting out of here. So we just like it was just like a big old villa. I think it was an old bath party villa. Mm-hmm. And um, so as we got there, you know, the sun was just setting. It was starting to get night. You know yourself, night time comes quite quick. It just like an instant. And um, 
Somebody tapped me on the shoulder, I was like, Speedy, you're on stag. I'm like, right, no worries, where's, where's, where do I go? I'm like, up the corner of the compound. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was walking up, and we Dan, right, one of the other mechanics was on guard, right? And I'm taking my time to get up there. And then suddenly, like, I must have, like, stood in a twig, I cracked a twig, and we Dan dead nervous, just turned around with his rifle. It's me, don't you? He was saying, you never woke him up, did you? I was all like, fuck, Dan was going to take us out. And then um, he disappeared, right? So I was just here at the side of this yeah. sanger, and just like, I have no idea what's in front of me. It's pitch black. Mm-hmm. I've, I've no idea what's twenty meters up the street. Did, did they? Did they get his night vision or anything? Uh, no, at this point, no, no with no night no. vision. <laughs> and I had a, a GPMG, a couple of grenades, in my personal weapon, and I'm like, see if anybody pops her heat up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's got to get taken off because I'm absolutely anxious. Here. Yeah. And and that, that was your very first. That was my first yeah, tag. I can relate to that. I mean? My very first. You're just like that, and it, you don't know what to expect. Do you know what I mean you think they'd put you on pairs or something? Yeah. Like that? No, on, <laughs> on your own for two hours. So that brilliant. <laughs> and what, what, what did it happen that tour? Did it? Uh, so we moved up. Um, you know, I think politics was changing. It was becoming. You know, I think Saddam had just been captured. I remember watching that on TV, like in the compound. Mm-hmm. So we were then moved up to Alamara, and that was nicknamed Bandit Country. And, you know, that's when... It's it never st- good when it's got a nickname like that, is it? Exactly. It's like <laughs> we're just heading for sudden death. <laughs> so we headed up there, and then, aye, that, that was just a different ball game for Bajra. You know, every time you went out on patrol, the guys were getting uh, stung with something. And then before you know it, you're only in the, that camp a few weeks, and then the mortars were coming in. Mm. And, and then me, myself, I was um, asked to take a fleet of white fleet discoveries down to Q8. And the old trick was, is, you know, you put the fit down, get to Q8, get into the American, uh, get into the American camps and get as much fresh fruit as you can <laughs> and drive slow as you can back up the road, you know yeah, what I mean? the American camps or something else, oh, aren't they? Like fresh, like fresh watermelon and all that. <laughs> dreaming about it. And I think that was the tactic these boys that went, uh, had on them. So New Year's Day, taking the white fleet down to Q8 and I was in the last vehicle. And um, no communication in these, no radios between them. And it was just why they will put the fit down to get to Kuwait. And as all these vehicles overtook this truck, yeah, I was the last one to go through. So I was kind of sandwiched between two infantiers. Uh, there must be late infantry again, like two LI, I think, this time. And we overtook this this wagon, but this guy started moving out. So we just went right off the road and hurt the sand, but the speed we hurt it, the, the rover flipped. So we were on the roof, on the wheels, on the roof. I think we rolled two or three times. Hell. And then we're just skating on the roof. And this is my logic. I'm like, if this roof comes off, my neck's coming off. Mm-hmm. You I'm like, t- so I'm just, were you strapped in, were you? I, well, I was strapped in because I was squashed in, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I remember putting my horns on the roof thinking, right, if the roof starts to come away, mm-hmm. it's my wrists and not my neck, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Fucking hell. And then it just, just came to a stop. And everybody in this rover was just silent. And in my mind's eye, I just pictured this grenade getting chucked in the window. And I remember just screaming and shouting, I've got to swear here. I'm like, get the fuck up, get the fuck out, get the fuck out. Yeah. And all the infantry lads just like came to life and just started smashing the windies and mm-hmm. crawling out this Land Rover. And um, that's when we looked up and realised we were on our own here. Like, the convoy had flown, kept going. Fuck's sake. And all Maybe these Iraqi folk now were all crowding runners and you think... Oh, any minute, somebody's got to take a pop at us and it's all mm. over, do you know what I mean? Just... What, were, what were you thinking then when that, when you seen the convoy fucking off and you was all left here? Oh, it was just like a sense of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And we had one guy who was injured, he took a, explained his neck. So we weren't going anywhere and we think we've just got to have to stay on here 
and it was just a case of watching everybody to see if anybody took a rifle or an AK-47 mm-hmm. up to the aim position, do you know what I mean? De- definitely. Um, but I think it was a good 20 minutes, but it felt like a lifetime before did that they, going did, forward, turned around. That's what I was going at, so they turned around and came back, and what happened? So they, they came around came back, I think the first convoy had comms back to Alamara. Mm-hmm. We were there for ages, and then as like a Danish army, I'm sure it was the Danish army came out. So they came out in a wee, you know, um, their wee equivalent to an ambulance took us all in it. One guy got a uh, helivac down to Bastion, no Bastion, that's, he uh, must have been down to Basra Airport, sorry. Yeah. He got heli, helivac down there. And we spent the rest of New Year's Day in this Danish med centre. And then the time we get picked up and brought up to Alamara, it was like one o'clock the next morning. I was literally back in my bed, back in my, like, sleeping bag. And then the motors come in again. Back out rolling under your bed again, ready for another night of motors. Re- ready to go again. And was that, how long was that? Six months you were out there? Six months in that tour, aye. And then what happened when you came back? Uh, so, so we came back actually, mm. and then the day I was coming back, I was in the advance party. And um, because I was getting posted in a few weeks' time, it was like, right, you need to get in the advance party, get back home, get your kit sorted, and, and go back to the UK. Um, but that morning we were taking off the camp was getting motored all night. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't like a, an airport up here. We weren't going back to Basra, so mm-hmm. it was basically this old makeshift runway. It was just mm-hmm. literally a string of concrete mm-hmm. with a desert around it. And we get one of them. It was like hand in your remember your old morphine tags, hand in your morphine, hand in your rounds, mm-hmm. weapon in the in its case, mm-hmm. and then you're in the back of Bedford or whatever it was going down to this makeshift runway. And as we were all sitting there, you could just see Camp Abu Naji just going up in wee puffs of smoke as the mortars were hitting it. Yeah. And we were all sitting there thinking, you know, this hair's got to land and there's mortars coming yeah. in. <laughs> this is they looking good. <laughs> and then it came through in the radio that the hair wasn't got to stop. It was literally just got to land, turn, and you had mm-hmm. to just basically run and get on the back of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, I started to question my fitness. I think I'm going to run with my rucksack, my hold all, my body armour, my helmet. And try and jump on a moving plane. I'm like, I can see myself just. Unless you've <laughs> actually experienced all that weight and all that kit on you, nobody would believe I, you how heavy it is. I to make that jump, <laughs> and I just thought you're, you're jumping for your life here. So yeah. like, just running at the back of this plane, and everybody else up up. And you think if I fall, everybody's like falling behind me. I don't want to be that person that messes this up. And then I made it on, and it was just a case. Everybody just chucked their bags in the crate thing. And the plane just took off, but you, everybody was just sat there thinking, who just died in Abu Naji? Because you just seen the big puffs of smoke going up, all the mm-hmm. accommodation. And I think Sky News was breaking at that point, saying that there was a, a fatality. And we all thought, that's one of our mates has just been taking it. So mm-hmm. that wasn't then, it wasn't, we never confirmed it didn't happen, but that was never um, rectified till we actually got down. I think it was Doha we landed in. Mm-hmm. So that was like two hours just that intense, no knowing what else, you just feel guilty just sitting in that plane all You're just thinking on it, you're burning in overdrive. Aye. Um, we get back into, I think I flew back into Hanover, and then again, you get into the camp, you're just used to all that closeness, all that camaraderie, and then the camp's just empty. Mm. And I remember that night, you know yourself, you pack up your MO4 boxes before you go, and you're like your whole life's just in four boxes now, and you think... <laughs> What's all this about? Do you know I mean? All your pals are still in Iraq, your life's in four boxes. And I remember just texting a mate and I was like, Are you a room? He's like, I got a taxi, popped out to mine. I just went, 
went to my pal Wayne's house and we just get smashed that night. <laughs> just got nothing else for it's it. Funny, it's funny you say that. The full eight years I was in the Marines, I just felt as if I lived my life at a black bag. Mm. Con- was, con- constant. Just, if it doesn't kind of fit in the back of your car, it's just That's you know, it. getting left behind. <laughs> and then that night you just got on it and then what was, what was happening after that? Did you do any other deployments, did you, Leslie? I, I mean, I went back to Ford Battalion, mm-hmm. so for me that was like a, what you call second blind kind of um, posting. And again, I posting that nobody, no mechanic would ever accept, but I've, they told me there was a lot of good fitbit going on, so I yeah. thought I'll go back for the fitbit. Is that what you did? Did you play with your fit, play I, fitbit? I, played, I played core and played regimental. Oh, yeah. I had a few trials for the forces, um, for the, the army, but I never mm-hmm. quite made the cup for the army. Um, by the time I got back to Ford Battalion, <laughs> it's one of them, you try and get as much kit in your MF4 and you're taking the rest back in your motor. And, uh, Got back to four battalion and then they told me, oh, you're going to exercise next week. I'm like, oh, my stuff's still in MF4. I'm like, oh, tough, you'll learn. I remember going this this exercise and all I had literally was my combat jacket. And <laughs> it's never good when you're going to exercise, is it? Aye, like, brutal. <laughs> um, and then it came up again, you know, you're going back to Batis and then you're going back to Iraq. So it was like a repeat, mm-hmm. repeat that whole tour again. But this time the tour was different because you were second line. Um... I was kind of in the workshop a lot of the time. I right. very rarely got out of camp. Um, but the one time I did get out, I was asked to go down to Umkazar Port with an mm-hmm. RAF fella. And all this, it was, it was like Indian ash hawk trucks. It was like donations to the Iraqi army. And he's been in this big hangar and I was asked to go down there to basically jumpstart them, get them running. The Iraqi army would then pick them up and drive them back to the camp. So I was literally set down with a battery pack and a toolbox to get as many of these things started. And... I, I can't even explain this to people. It was like a Mexican standoff, right? Mm-hmm. I was so busy doing the trucks and my wee toolbox was outside. I had an American kind of top cover fella and his Humvee. This RAF fella, I can't even remember his name. They were just kind of doping about, supposed to be my security while I'm doing all this mm-hmm. bump starting. And I'm, I'm out, right? I'm outside and I'm bump starting this truck and that one drives off and then I'm bump starting that and that drives that one off. And then the next thing I look up, and the Iraqi army's in the line doing this way, and the Iraqi police have arrived, and they're in the line doing that way. And they hate each other, so they're like throwing insults to each other, and like pistols are coming out, and they're all waving guns in each other's faces. Uh-huh. And I'm just stood in the middle here, like an adjustable spanner. <laughs> <thing. laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Fucking hell. And I look at my security, and the Humvee's <laughs> reversing back up yeah. this, like this, up the port. I'm like, wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally me, I've just got a spanner here. I, oh, that, was, that was surreal, and all. I think, what, what, what was all about? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was probably the most exciting thing that happened in that tour because we began to realise that we're just becoming sitting ducks. Mm-hmm. Like it was becoming clear that nobody really had a clue what we were doing out there anymore. So quickly became quite demoralising. Mm-hmm. You thought you were just kind of just starting to waste your life away. And how, like, I felt it. See what you're saying there. That period. Mm-hmm. How were you feeling, and how was your life in that period when you felt demoralised in the army, like stale? So when my last four years in the Marines, when I felt still, it's that outside life was suffering for it because I wasn't enjoying the Marines. Were you the same? No. Aye, I think so because. If that makes sense. Aye, because all that was happening at the same time. I had to now make a career decision because right. the force and the remit, you know, you go, you get your full screw, and you basically make that jump. You have to decide if you're going to Tifisa, which mm-hmm. is you do your sergeant for like eight months, like eighteen months in the depot and then you're basically a staff sergeant with a tiffy at the end of it. So that that decision was coming up for me quite soon. Do I go for my go into my class one, go pub, do my tiffy course, or do I start to think about leaving? 
And I think, um, I, uh, four battalion, I think, was what, what killed me. Because um, I remember just getting quite depressed. And then I, I realised that I was coming, you know, rather than doing any fitness, when I get back for that tour, I realised I was just wanting to, like, just drink all the time, just going to the shop, buying cans, sitting in your room drinking. Um, it, it wasn't, the platoon wasn't as jailed together. I don't think there was much camaraderie. So for me, it was like, I couldn't wait to get posted out of there and get onto my class one course. Mm -hmm. But I did feel that that was the point where my career started to, the excitement was over for me for the, for the forces, do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And it was just, you get through that whole doubting yourself that you've got to be any good in Civvy Street. Because mm. um, you're always told that you'll never make it in Civvy Street and Civvy Street's too hard for you. That's a classic in the army and the Aye. Marines as well. That's when they do, they brainwash you, don't they? Um, so for me, that I just prolonged that decision for another two years mm. um, because you thought, what, what, I'm not good outside, I can't, there's not much, <laughs> not as if there's lots of jobs for tank mechanics in mm -hmm. Civvy Street, so. And what was the tipping point to you actually putting your notice in? The tipping point for me was, I mean, my class one was good because I was back into the depot again and caught up with some old mates. But I think the tipping point was getting back up to Munster with this time the RDGs, Royal Dragoon Guards. And I think maybe for me, I was comparing them too much to the QRH because at that time there was phenomenal with the lads. Mm -hmm. But with the RDGs, I just felt that, you know, my face didn't fit in this regiment. I felt like I didn't fit in here. And then it was, again, back to Iraq for the third time. And I'm thinking... I think I've been sold a pig and a poke with the forces, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like travel the world and do all this adventurous training and stuff. It's like, just go to Iraq and repeat every other year I was in Iraq. Uh, the brochure's not as good as it was when you were fucking 18, isn't it, no? Exactly. And, you know, yourself, you know, you start to like, get a wee bit older and mature and you start to wise up to a lot of it and you think, mm -hmm. well, this is not for me anymore. And um, it was, you know, when I joined after then. After I signed up and stuff, I joined the forces first of Jan or 5th of January 2000. So I thought, let's just wait to New Year. So New Year's Day, out in where was I this time? Basri Airport. I just went in and I said, I just want to sign off now. How did you feel? Is it just. Um, I think to start with, I felt good. I felt I'd make the right decision. Mm -hmm. But then as the time got closer and closer, I was like, ah, do you know, I'll give a street a bash. If it's rubbish, I can I just join back up. And I gave myself that safety net. I'll always just join back up if mm. it's rubbish. You know, I mean, a lot of folk do that anyway. Um, but I think for me, there was an element of maybe running away from the reality of the street because I had thought, I want to go and travel the world anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I joined to, to do that humanitarian stuff. And I was leaving for the same reasons now. You know, I mean, I, I left, I wanted to go to Brazil, mm -hmm. I worked in the townships. Then I went on to Africa again, working in the townships there, so... Is this where you were in the army? Is this this when, when I left. left. So this so, was your next steps into humanitarian? Aye. And what happened there? Um, so <laughs> for me, it was that realisation, like I said, you know, going through four battalion, going out to Iraq again, I was like, this isn't, this isn't what I was signed up to do. I wanted to do a lot more humanitarian work. So as soon as I signed the paper, it was just a case of save, 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 save every penny and just put it all away. And then as soon as I left the force, it was, it was like, just go and travel and do it. I, I don't care where I end up, just go and travel and do all that humanitarian stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, the first place I went out to was Brazil. I used my termination leave to go to Brazil. Uh, most folk use that to get a job. How, <laughs> how, how do you get into like, humanitarian work on that, Leslie? Uh, to me, it, it, was, like, it was impossible, basically, because 
if you want to do like that, like immediate response for maybe disaster relief, you've mm-hmm. kind of just got to be at the right place at the right time. And usually when it kicks off, you've got a nine to five job to go to. So, so is, it, is it for a charity or is it? That's how I get into it. Right, I. Charity, cool. So I just sat for ages googling different charities, mm-hmm. emailing them, and then one get back to me. This was a Christian charity. Get back to me and said they've got a trip coming up to Brazil. Do you want to go? And I was like. Why no? Just go for it. You know, I'd never considered how, Brazil how, before. How, how was Brazil? What was that like? Oh, that, that's just, I, that was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the best experiences of my life going out there. I was, um, we, we lived in like a, a wee hotel just at the edge of this township. And the whole purpose of being there was to work with the Brazil, uh, their equivalent of social work. Mm-hmm. And what this this guy that is, is inspiring actually, this fella gave up his whole civil engineering business mm-hmm. and just started building houses in this old street. So their equivalent of the council gave them a gave them all this derelict land, and he just built these wee kind of what would you say like wee bungalows. It was like two wee bedrooms, a kitchen, and a dining room. But if you've came for a slum, this is like heaven. Yeah, luxury. And he just kept building them, and it, I, th- I think he's up to three or four streets now. Mm-hmm. But the time I was there was like only like six houses was built. So we would, I just went out and just did a bit of bricky labour with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just being that, that what would you say, the lackey on the site, really. What's, just, what's, this, what's the standard of life like there in Brazil what's for the people that, uh, you were, that you were working with and helping? Uh, you, you couldn't even, how do you describe it? So the, when you say living in the slums, like you're not living, you're surviving. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe for, for one house, for example. The tin sheds they were in? Aye, it was literally all corrugated iron mm-hmm. sheets and bits and bits of tarpaulin thrown together and old crates and old pallets and, you know, I, I mean, fair, fair play to this fella, you know, he tried to make yourself a wee toilet and it was literally just a bit of porcelain toilet with a hole in the flare mm-hmm. and it was just a hole in the flare to, like, underneath the house, you know <laughs> right. what I mean? You go around the back of the house, everything's there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, kids are walking through this, the dogs are rolling in it and then get in their hussies or you know but some of these folk are probably the most like the most warmest the kindest you'd ever meet do you know what I mean I never felt unsafe because mm-hmm. I were just so grateful that you were there trying to make a difference for them um, but there were some absolutely heartbreaking stories and like, like I, I, we chatted earlier like one of them was one family got the house because the wee girl had leukaemia mm-hmm. but the second week I was out there, that wee lassie passed away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this family just, because they just looked up to all these, you know, missionaries or humanitarian people, however you want to describe them, they just asked them to, would you do the funeral? Because the funeral had to happen that day. I didn't realise right. that was their culture. And nobody wanted to speak. Everybody was just stunned. Like, how, how can we do a funeral with a 11 year old girl? And you think, well, we, we can't really say no. Mm-hmm. And, like, who's got to talk? And you think, Alright, I'll have to date then nobody else is putting themselves forward. Not you, you, but yeah. And I remember getting in and at this wee open casket, maybe about this big, and it had like, um, what's the old, remember the old neck curtains? Right. Like a neck curtain over the casket. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to say probably the most, I don't know what you call it, you know, most compassionate, profound words I could think of. Hoping that this translator will make sense of it and maybe wing it if I've cuffed it. Mm-hmm. And you're doing this kind of wee funeral speech that's fucking through mad. a transit. That's mad, isn't it? Over this open casket was just surreal. Mm. But maybe went on reflection, I don't think that hurt me as hard as you would think, because I think you're used to seeing all that deprivation in Iraq, you know? Mm. And I remember seeing a wee lassie just crawling through. I mean, I don't know why. It was just literally crawling through 
well, muck and dung and all sorts, because this Iraqi family just lived in what would be a similar slum, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think maybe by the age of 24, 25, the amount of like, extreme poverty I'd seen, I think that was actually is this when is this, is this when you started the humanitarian aye. stuff around at that aye. age, aye? It was, aye, you know, at that point you'd just seen so much, I think you started to become a bit cynical with life, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, so I left Brazil. Uh, that that was just like a long flight home, just thinking and everything you'd done, everything you'd seen out there. But again, everybody was so grateful. You know, you'd walk up the street, people would come out and want to give you fresh fruit, they'd want to take you into their houses, they'd want to sip the coffee with you, the ghee bottles, the water. They were just so grateful. And then I came back for that. I was only in the UK again for a few a few weeks. And then I flew out to Africa. I was out for Africa for four months. Um, again, that was like pack up everything, go to live in Africa. <laughs> What did you go in Africa? I lived in a wee estate called Weinberg, just uh, in Cape Town. Oh, right, Cape Town. And, yeah, and that Cape was like football based. That's so why I asked you about the tin sheds because I was I had when you said Brazil, I did have a picture of being to Cape Town that was on the tin. Hi, the okay, townships. You'll be able to explain what Cape Town's like. It's like two different worlds, isn't it? Ah, oh, it is definitely rich Get people and just fucking. When I say poor people, it is tin sheds, isn't it? Aye, you've got like these like two extremes. That you get this very affluent people who maybe live in the Atlantic View, yeah. just on that side of the table. Uh, table Mountain mm -hmm. and stuff, and then just in the outskirts, you've got all these like you know people who've just been pushed up off the off the land and mm -hmm. living in you like know, you know like tin sheds, Slums, you know, for yeah. the apartheid basically. Um, and my, my first day, I mean, again, naive, didn't know too much about that history, and moved into this wee house in Weinberg. I didn't realise that I was only the only white person in that whole area. And I started walking up this wee street. I was like, because the wee fridge, you know, that was empty in the apartment. I yep. think I better go and get some some messages in, you know. Just started walking about, and then you suddenly become very wary that you're the minority now, do you know. Mm -hmm. and, and that was quite scary, was it? It was quite scary because you know you're in this foreign country. You don't know really know anybody, and you're just walking up the main street like you've been mm -hmm. here for forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I got back, and the other lassies who were part of that Fitba outreach, they just lived two or three doors up. And they, they popped in to visit and they, they, they girls were brought up in townships and I told them, I said, where, where you been all morning? Like your flight came in at eight, where you been? I'm like, oh, I just, just popped up the street, get some show them. They're like, no, 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 no. Numbers gangs, you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> and explain what the numbers gangs are. I'm like, oof, I'll just what was, walk what, a bit with you now on. What, what was that? What was the numbers gangs? Oh, so the numbers gangs, I, I can't remember the... I can't remember the actual gang's names, mm -hmm. but they did name themselves like the 212s or something like that, mm -hmm. or the three fours or whatever. But part of it, if you get into the gangs, part of your initiation, it could be you had to take a life. Right. And they might just decide that morning that kill the next white person you see here. Mm -hmm. And the, the trip when I was there was um, they would drive around with their headlights on full. So if you flashed at them, it dip their headlights. They would take you. They, they would follow you and say, "Right, that that's who you're going to take out. That's that's your initiation. Is the mm. first person to flash their lights at you." Fuck's sake. Um, one of my friends, she was. She'd been out there for a long time. She get. She stopped at the traffic lights, and then uh, she got shot through through the jaw. She survived. I think she had to get her jaw re restructured, mm -hmm. but she survived that. But uh, that that was quite. An eye opener. I felt more danger in Cape Town than it did in Barrow. <laughs> you know I, mean? I can imagine. And what did you do in Cape Town? I did quite a few things. So a lot of the stuff was like setting up, like what we'd call like equivalent to community development and sport. Mm -hmm. So we were going into a lot of the townships and teaching all the wee kids to play football. 
But what we're really doing is like, using the, the rules of football and the rules of like team sports to say like this is how you can be a good citizen. Mm-hmm. Here's kind of like the rules for life, how they apply to like just be being a good citizen and in, in, in the world really. And what we're really trying to do there was kind of reduce crime rates, try just improve these young kids' aspirations, you know, try mm-hmm. and get a bit more like better health. And a lot of it was slipping in the message about HIV prevention and stuff yeah. like that. So there's still a lot of what would you say, myths and I can't remember the word for it out there, but there was still a lot of... Misinformation. Aye, misinformation. Um, but it is like Stigma. literally all, Stig- all myths. That, you know, they believed that, you know, if there was some myths that, you know, if you raped a woman, the, the virus would leave you. So Fuck's that, sake. That's, honestly. That's but, you know, turning up to football in the morning with the girls, it wasn't uncommon for girls to turn up to talk about either a friend's been raped or just witnessed a rape or, or they've been raped. And that was just the reality of life out there for mm. a lot of young lasses. And that was just before the World must be, Cup. That must be hard for you, in that environment, listening to that fucking hell. Oh, man. it's so destroying, you know. It's you think, wow, how do you how do you help these young lasses? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was it. Every day, you just had to like just give them something positive to look forward to. Mm-hmm. But when one of the other things we did out there was, I think we called it the Millennium Goal. You know, going back for a few years now, and it was in the back of the World Cup. And what we found was happening was is a lot of women were getting promised these jobs in Cape Town or Johannesburg for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. But what they were actually doing is they were actually getting tricked into basically sex slavery. So we were doing a lot of campaigning to raise awareness for this and try to stop these women don't fall for these, these jobs that don't exist. Because what would happen is their passports and all that would get taken open, they would just be kind of locked up in a house and that would be Tra- Trafficked. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was camps. a lot of that going on. Um, again, that was just all through, through the numbers gangs and stuff like that. Um, probably one of the probably one of the best experiences out there was actually going to Drakenstein Prison, and I think Ross Kemp did a documentary on that. That's like notorious, and we we went in and what we set up in there. Well, I never set up. I was just part of the team who came along, but they set up a football academy in one of the cells. Now a cell out there's maybe sixteen guys in a room, and they set up the football academy. If you signed up to this, you were basically signing your life away because you were basically saying that. You've got to step away from the numbers gangs, you're going into the football academy. Once you leave the gang, you can't go back. So this was a life and death decision for them to join the academy. But like once they were in the bit I enjoyed is we ran it like a military boot camp. So, you know, they got up every day, their boots had to be cleaned, their beds had to be made, they weren't allowed any pornographic material, uh, they had to come to training, they had to behave a certain way. And I did a training session with these guys and honestly, I, they, they, these boys were fit as fiddles, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I remember doing a training session with them and every one of them lapped me around the pitch. But they were so encouraging, like, keep going, keep going. And you just didn't expect that for a bunch of guys who were hardened criminals, mm. ex-gang members. And here they were, you know, carrying you on a football pitch and encouraging mm. you to keep going. And, like, watching these guys' like warm-up routine, it, it was, like, regimental. They were so in sync with each other. It was like yeah. a one big dance routine. Like, this is just been phenomenal. that routine every day mm-hmm. if you've been inside there. Exactly. But that was life-changing for them because you, they knew that if they messed up in the academy, they went back to mainstream jail, it was game over. Mm-hmm. So they they fully committed and a lot of the guys went out and became football coaches. Brilliant. They just turned their life so around. rehabilitation then. Aye, it, it was it phenomenal. And then you flip to that, to some other outreach we'd done in the Women's Refuge Centre. And that was just, again, all these women who've maybe escaped, you know, like you say, sex trafficking or... 
um, in some sort of refuge and all these young kids in the compound I think this is just you know football's just not got to cut it you know what I mean mm-hmm. you need a lot more humanitarian support than uh, a bunch of young football stars coming mm-hmm. in to teach you something you know mm-hmm. and what was your next steps after the humanitarian stuff Leslie? Well, I did end up coming back to the UK and, you know, this is when civil life started catching up for me because mm-hmm. when, when my savings ran out and the humanitarian work mm-hmm. came to a halt, it was like, like, what's my next step? Like, how do you... Transition. How do, I, how, how, do, how do you go the next step above that? Once you've seen all that, you know, maybe the age of 25, 26, like, how do you relate to civil life now? Um, so I kind of just messed about doing in Portsmouth, bumming around some, like sofa surfing, sleeping at mates' houses, no knowing really what my next move was. And I ended up, like, my friend thought I was staying for two weeks. I ended up staying for six months. Aye. And it was kind of one of them, come on, come on, time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Politely tell me, to, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. So I ended up coming back up to Scotland. And um, again, there was no, no space back at my mum's house for me. So I was like, where, where do I go? So I ended up just living in my auntie's spare room. And, you know, sending jobs off every day, try to do something and then I realised, you know, I might have to sign on the brew for the first time mm-hmm. in my life. And I remember doing that, that was just probably the most, I don't want to say embarrassing, but I just felt really undignified the way you went into a job centre and just get spoke to like an absolute piece of dirt. Mm-hmm. And you know what, it's, you don't want to turn around to the job centre and say, do you know who I am? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. not like that. But I remember just leaving there thinking, they one of people really have issues with signing on and stuff like that. It just, like, just felt like your dignity It's ego in it and your pride. Aye, especially when you look back at what you've done from your past, the mm. army, then the humanitarian mm. stuff. And I suppose <clears> at, at that point, I didn't realise that what you, you know, you're building all this up, you've got all these transferable skills, but nobody really tells you that when you've left no, the forces. No, like what you said before is the... They brainwash you to say there's nothing else. Exactly. Do you know what and I mean? All you can be is a soldier. Especially so you, if you're so you in 16. Yeah, you know? massively. So I ended up funding this wee local charity who were setting up like a community development project in Lark Hall and I thought, I, I quite like what they're doing. So I'm going to like chip in and start volunteering with them. And then lo and behold, maybe after a year, they actually gave me a full-time job. But again, maybe I'm a wee bit naive to how the charity world works. You know, funding's not got to last forever. So... Um, couldn't afford anywhere to live so I, I started lodging with them and then started working so a big mistake I put all my eggs in one basket you know what I mean <laughs> and then what happened was maybe after two years two three years um, the boss came up and it was basically like there's no funding like we've not managed to secure it you've kind of got 30 days left and it's like so it has got to be well, your job in 30 days basically I and you think what, what the hell do I do? How do I get a job in 30 days' time? Because, you know, you don't get paid a lot of money and, you know, once you've paid your, your digs and stuff, like that, there's not much left. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was trying to, like, I was studying a wee bit of carpentry, you know what I mean? My old man was a joiner, so I, was, I thought, let's maybe try and do a wee bit of carpentry and maybe a wee bit of furniture making and earn a wee bit that way. But I never had enough to break even, do you know what I mean? And my job was coming to an end and I can just see the writing on the wall, I'm like, I'm, I'm heading for homelessness, like, what enough am I going to do here? Mm-hmm. And then, like, panic sets in, so, you know, and then, I think for me, it's just the stress levels just went through the roof, do you know what I mean? I just could not control this now, I was at your job, couldn't find anything, like, and it was that self-esteem, who's, who's got to employ a veteran who kind of really only knows maybe how to dig a garden or take a spade to something? Um, so... Aye, I think about a month later, about six, seven weeks later, that was it. I had to pack up and leave. 
And I remember that day, you know, it was like all my stuff that I could basically fit in the back of your car went in it. So you never, uh, this is where you were living in your car at this, you never did any... No, I, I had a wee room, mm-hmm. but I had to give the room up and it was literally throw, throw your belongings back in the car. And it mm-hmm. just felt like you're never skating that military, if you can fit it in the back of your motor, you know what I mean? I know the feeling. Um, you know, you just felt like you were living a bag since I was 16. And um, that was it. It went up to my mum's, chapped on her door. Well, I walked in, sorry, and I was like, just broke down. And I was like, mum, I've got to have to move back in. I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. I lost my job. I had a wee bit of credit card debt to pay off. The motor I was driving was an absolute banger. You know, I mean, I had, I, I felt like the world had just fell apart for me. Do you think you were maybe in that period of time struggling to come to terms with obviously leaving the military and leaving that type of lifestyle to try to get a nine to five job oh, and, be, and be an adult? Oh, definitely. So when you look back now, you think that I just didn't realise that was transition and just mm. civilian street adjustment, really. Never, it's no, you never really had the support network there, as we've explained, through the military or what, to say this is how to do it, do you know right, what I mean? because back then the military didn't really do mental health, that was just like weakness of the mind. Mm. It was just kind of like man up and go on with it. Um, and how was your mental health oh, in Leslie? At that point, just in the gutter, do you know what I mean? That was probably the darkest period of my life I've ever went through. Were you drinking or? Drugs are eating at that period? No, at that period, no, there was no drinking <clears throat> drugs. I'm one of them, like, a, if I'm in a real downer, I'd rather no drink, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. you just got to get you, like, further down that depressing hole. Were you using, like, coping mechanisms? Was there anything that was...? Um, I think my coping mechanism was the wee dog, you know what I mean? Because, like, a wee Jack Russell found its oh, way right, in my life. wee dog, yeah. And I think at that point, you know, it was like... Uh, I, that was it. I was like, I, I need to try and screw the nut here because I've got a dog to look after. <laughs> Do you know what it's I mean? a responsibility, isn't it? Um, but that, what, what happened then was, you know, I think I was in the homeless. I registered for homelessness about August time. And it was one of them, you know, I, I said to my sister, like, I'm going to have to register for homeless here because I, I can't just live in a flare. Do you know what I mean? I was literally living on a mattress on the floor in my mum's spare room because um, she had these tiny wee beds. But they were for the grand wins. Mm-hmm. I remember trying to sleep in one night and like the steel was hitting off the back of my neck in one end and then you know the steel was at the back of my ankles and the other. I'm like, I can't sleep in this. And then put a mattress on the flare and that, that was kind of what all my bags around me. And that was my whole life reduced to that. Just want to ask you a wee question there. When you registered for homeless, I had Adam, who I, who I run my bootcamp business with on a few podcasts ago. He was in a similar situation where he was like living in a caravan and he went to register as homeless and get and he said it was an absolute nightmare. There was no houses for them, they were getting put up in Sheltered Sheltered by four other people. Was that the same? Aye, they offered me this and like they told me it was a six month wait for a, a house. And they told me the only thing they could offer me they knew was like a sheltered accommodation, but I couldn't take my wee dog. Mm. And I was like rather rather sleep in the street with my dog than going to Shell accommodation. It's a fucking joke, man, that there's no housing for people in this day and age, isn't it? Aye, I think it's got better now. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, it was like a six-month wait. And I mean, I'm not saying anything about sheltered housing. I'd rather sleep in the street with my dog, but I couldn't give the dog up. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I wasn't going to say... I wasn't going to park the dog. It was the only thing that was keeping me going. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I've just got to have to continue to, to live, in the, live in the floor. Mm-hmm. And then what happened then was... You know, I just end up getting into this bit of despair because I never knew where I was going to be re- rehoused, where it was going to be. Get these images of maybe getting into like a four on the block, surrounded by maybe anti-social neighbours, maybe quite notorious reputations. 
And I think I, I couldn't handle that, you know what I mean? So you have this constant anxiety. And then, what, what, I don't know how it came, but so, like I just started at night time whenever I shut my eyes, you know, I just had this, this voice or whatever it was, it was like a feeling. And it was like, you know, you know, you'd be better off, you'd be better off dead. Mm. And I'm like, well, what about my family? Do you know what I mean? They're going to miss me. And it was like, oh, your family will be fine, you know? Like, they've got kids now, they've got their married, they're all moved on. You know, they'll be sad for a wee while, but they'll soon get over you. And that, that was what this was telling me. And I remember just arguing and wrestling with this nearly every night. And then one of the nights I was just like, who'll look after my wee dog? And you know, that was it. Like, I was like, nothing. I was like, well, I need to hang about. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's a fucking scary period uh, there when you're obviously in, was it just I, lying in your bed at night? Just fucking... lying in your bed every time you shut your eyes. And mm -hmm. it got to the point where you just didn't want to sleep. You didn't want to get through that torment. So I phoned up a couple of pals and one of them said, you know, might be a job here driving trucks, cash in hand. Mm. Well, are you supposed to declare it? Do you know what I mean? But I was like, how much? And like, well, like £7.50 an hour. I'm like, I'll do it. Do you know what I mean? I just needed something to break this cycle. So I just started driving trucks up and down. It was before that CPC driving thing came in so you could get away with it. And then um, we just thought, that it's just a case I just need to save up money here, just pay off any debt that I've got, pay off credit cards and, and just try and get my life back on track. And then I started sending applications away. I am got like 20 to 30 applications a day. And then one came back, it was a job doing it, the wind farm doing it SSE. Never thought I would ever land a job with a big corporation or anything. I never <laughs> thought I was good enough. <laughs> I went down. And why, and why, and just, why did you never think you were good enough? Is that, because obviously you've looked back, is that, is that stemming for just the army saying you're not good enough to do it? Is there anything? that you've felt for your past that's gave you that mindset because if you look at your story for a woman to go and join the army mm. it's fucking courageous itself and go through the things like going in operations and dealing with and all the things you've dealt with is being that might does that make sense i i think it's just that whole self-worth yeah. maybe the councillor state mentality mm -hmm. you never really yeah. think you're going to actually you know be that person that's got your own house and your big motor and stuff like yeah. that. i just always think that this is as good as life gets. So maybe that's always in the back of your mind. Army certainly didn't help it with saying that you'll never cope with Civvy Street, you know. Mm -hmm. But when I turned up for that job, I remember, like I told you this, like, you know, the, the motor was a write-off. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was an absolute banger. You know, I think they had the back of it, I had glued together with masking tape and all yeah. sorts. And I was like, I can't be seen driving into an interview with this. I reverse parked it, went in. And look out the window, right? You could see a wind turbine, and this guy's asking me, So, how do you think a wind turbine works? I'm thinking, How does a tank track work? <laughs> so, I'm just trying to explain it. I'm looking at So, there must be a turning yeah. gear, and a gearbox, and a bearing, <laughs> and all this stuff made go up. Yeah. And then he started asking me about electricity, and I'm having to get it right back to tech college. I'm thinking, Ah, there was diodes, there was bridge rectification, and I've thrown You're just all this fucking winging it. Just, just winging it, right? <laughs> and then he looked out the window and he said, Oh, I see you've reversed park. Mm. It's good that you've read the joining instructions. I'm like, ah, <laughs> did you know? <laughs> no, reverse park because the motor was all back yep. at the back. Man. Oh, guy, okay, because you're done in motor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then uh, drove away and I thought I pal up and I was like, ah, ah, I don't know if I've got this job or no. She's like, watch this. Did you wing it? I'm like, I was like, that's the one you got to get. <laughs> uh, but a month later, they phoned up. I was like, you got the job? And I'm like, I can't even believe this. Like, can I phone you back? I thought my pal, I'm like, this has been a month and they're telling me I've got the job. I'm like, 
Phone them back and tell them I. Phone them back and say, I'll take the job. Yeah. And he must have thought, what's this? Aye, <laughs> why, I mean? why should you not want the job? <laughs> so then, I mean, I mean, about a month later, that was me. I started with SSE. And as soon as I get the permanent contract through and signed it, I was still told the mate, get that to the scrap beard, we're going for a new <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and then I was up in Perth. I was doing a wee bit of training with them. I was up in Perth and my homeless unit, the, the homeless officer phoned me. And she's like, ah, Leslie, there's a house came up. Uh, you're next in the list. You want to go and view it? And it was something my sister just said, just just uh, like flippantly, she just came up with a comment about the bank offering her a mortgage. And then when this homeless woman phoned, I was like, do you know, Sam, I'm, I'm not homeless anymore. I'm going to be a mortgage. I'm a mortgage saver. I'm saving for my first house. So I'd like to come off the, the register now. And she just said, you know, glad to hear it. Best of luck hope it all works out for you and that, that was kind of the end of it and for that day my perception changed from being a homeless person to being a mortgage saver mm. and then next thing you know my sister phones up and says I've got a tax rebate will help you with your, your deposit just pay me back mm-hmm. and then as soon as I got qualified on the turbines I was just working overtime weekends whatever I could and I think within four or five months of that I had my first house amazing it just shows you if you're thinking you're not good enough to get in that wee bit of so self belief for a wee exactly. bit and that opportunity to have the job to then go and do you know what I can make a difference. I mean, getting into that renewable energy, that was just probably the biggest confidence boost I've had in my, my adult life because it was suddenly like you're in this, this new emerging industry. Mm. Folk are talking to you, like, what's a turbine tech? You're telling them you're working 80 metres up per tower, what you're doing, and everybody's like, oh, that sounds amazing. And you start thinking, ah, oh, this is quite a cool job, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it was actually when they sent me to Germany for two weeks. And what was it? What was was the job? Was the job cool? Was oh, the it? job was brilliant. Was it? Aye. it was. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing job. And whenever I see a job's coming up, I'm always putting it in my Facebook. Like new jobs coming up the wind industry, get in there. And I would tell any squaddy leaving as well, get get into offshore wind. It's mm-hmm. just that's a new oil and gas. Yeah, and yeah, if you're yeah. a squaddy, you'll get zapped up and bother. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that for seven years, and you know, after two years, I went I went into the site supervisor's role. Then I focused on what you call emergency planning. And then that's when I kind of realised that all the wee parts of my jigsaw of life just started coming together. I'm thinking, oh, don't I join the forces to do this kind of stuff? And I left for that kind of stuff. And now I'm doing it as a site supervisor, this emergency response, and kind of try to respond to any humanitarian crisis. So I ended up doing a lot of Googling, and I found you could do courses on this like, called resilience. I'm like, oh, I've never even heard of that word before. Mm-hmm. So started studying it. At, um, at, New College, Lanarkshire, and then it's during the um, during the study of that. That's when the pandemic hit, and I was like sitting thinking, do you know, so I should really do some here because with all that experience and doing this course and doing it in my job, I should really maybe set up some sort of community response thing here. Mm-hmm. I remember texting my pal Alan. I came back for the gym one night. I text my pal Alan, I was like, Alan, what, what's happening during this lockdown? Because it's got to come, do you know, if anybody's doing stuff? And he's like, no, I was like, well, I've kind of got an idea. And literally just poured a glass of wine, right? Went on to Facebook and there's Alan, put my name over Facebook. Leslie's got an idea. <laughs> I'm like, it's a chuck in the deep end here. Right. Just tap the table there. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> the next thing you know, I'm setting up this, this wee community meeting to get people involved in mm-hmm. doing some sort of community COVID response. And then within two or three days, we had the team set up, the operation response model in place, very strategic, you know. That's amazing, by the way. Just shows you all that experience you've gained over the years for the army to your humanity, and then you COVID hits and with bigger, bigger response to. Aye, it was, that, that was just phenomenal, that. And it was just like, 
I don't want to see all your stars align, but it was just like you could just then start to see, wow, whenever all, all these have just came it's, together. It's, that's your step up moment, though, there, isn't it? It's such a time, like, what, how was that anyway? That What was it like in the community and working with the community? Was there ha- obviously, there was hardship for everybody, but what was it like being in amongst it, Leslie? Um, and this is in this country now, do you know what I mean? Ah, exactly. So for me, it was. Um, when we kind of set up, it was kind of one of them, you know, I just remember, because by that point I was into a lot of positive self-talk, I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of like reading up in stoicism and stuff like that, so like mentally I was probably in the strongest place I've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I remember just telling myself like, just just allow yourself to feel every emotion, just just embrace a lot. And I remember just, you know, the night when we started setting up, I remember just taking a deep breath and thinking, get everything you've got, just, just go for it. And they, uh, Lockdown got called, I think, on the Monday night, and I had folk out all day Monday and the Sunday night delivering only flutes with everybody. You were a key worker then, were you? Within that? Yeah, I was a key worker. Getting out in the community and that? For that, I was doing that just half my own back. Yeah. Um, I was doing that on my voluntary time. And uh, and the work was dead supportive. When I told my job, when I told SSE Renewables, they thought it was brilliant. Do you know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. were so supportive of it. And then a lot of them was like, can we do anything to help or any funding and stuff like that? So, um, but what we done was, as soon as we got the wee call centre set up and started doing that whole, that immediate response, if you like, to people shopping and their, their, their kind of essential needs, mm-hmm. we knew straight away that we'd need a long-term mental health plan. So we started doing a lot of what we called community outreach work and that was things like, you know, stuff like, you know, doing the, the stones with the kids and getting the kids to do their wee art projects because we wanted the kids to have a, a positive experience so when they look back in lockdown they can see like their wee contribution to the mm-hmm. community so they, they felt like they were, had a positive role to play and then for the elderly people we set up things like pen pals and we just started to see the community just really come together and, and I think the big moment for me was walking into a local shop when you could get back into the shops I walked into the local spa and some of the women were saying when you're doing the bingo again, I want the bingo again, you're doing the bingo next week. And I didn't realise that Facebook bingo was got to be so popular and the, the village became quite competitive of it. Mm-hmm. And then it was getting to the point people were texting me like 10 minutes before, any bingo books left, any bingo books yeah. left. I'm like, they've got one, text them, like, no, you date for me, you sort it out. I'm like, wow, I never realised that like bingo was got to become so cutthroat during lockdown. But we're great banter. <laughs> we set up wee online quiz yeah. nights, so some of the banter, it was all about just no serious answers it was just like give the most ridiculous answer and we Alan the DJ kind of guy who went live he just get pelters all night really? long but took it in good faith you know and uh, what happened there was again this was a big turning point for me was I realised then that I, w- I was really just wanting to do community work humanitarian work I've, I've got to be working with people so what happened was is my local MSP came out to visit I, I think I must have emailed her she heard about it and she came out I took her a wee walk around the village and then a few weeks later I got this email sent by mistake by the way I think her secretary maybe let the secret out that I kind of got invited to state opening the parliament as uh-huh. a local hero kind of celebration thing and it's when I was there I realised you know like I'm not really interested in getting up the corporate ladder I just want to be in a community working and, and what I've seen happening in Kitmer Hill and Blackwood I'm thinking how do you keep this going now how do, mm-hmm. how do you do that so I decided reluctantly, or it was a tough decision, but turn my back now in renewable energy and get back into the whole humanitarian work again. Yeah, because you can see the whole impact of that with helping other people on it. It gives you a sense mm. of 
achievement or satisfaction that you're making a difference to people's lives. Yeah. So what does the future hold for you now, Leslie? So the future, um, hopefully next week, get my final assignment in for my degree. And then I'm looking to get back into studying resilience management, or sorry, resilience leadership and get my master's. Um, I've got a long-term community renewal project getting designed for Blackton and Kitmer House, so I'm meeting to be architect tomorrow night. So what I'm hoping to do now is build up a lot of community support, secure funding and build a, a new kind of, do I say 21st century, but a really cool 21st century um, sustainable, sorry, a youth centre and community mm, centre. So some like a, a podcast studio or a music studio for the yeah. young folks and really support young folk in the village and kind of give them the same chances as I had. That, that's amazing. And just to wrap up the podcast today, Leslie, all that experience you've had over the years, if you had one piece of advice, them do it there who may be struggling with writing and are ready to make a change or a turning point, what would it be? I think for me is to make that turning point, I would just say, just get both hands, just just fully commit to it. Because there's a wee phrase I was reading recently, you know, when when you fully commit to it, providence moves too. So once you make that commitment, you'll find that things will start to happen for you. So it's just take that deep breath and go for it. Amazing, absolutely amazing. I couldn't agree more, Leslie. So that's it for the day. Thanks very much for Thank coming you. on the podcast and hopefully we can do it again soon. Cheers, thanks Cheers. a lot.